So sometimes when I do these movies during the summer, I really have to reach for material. I have to try and find what can connect into the movie from what's going on in my life or our lives or what's going on in the world. This is not one of those weeks. Sometimes I can easily let the movie go, especially if it's been troubling. This is not one of those weeks. Now, The Dark Knight is an enjoyable movie. It is an incredibly powerful movie to watch. But I have to tell you, it hit me much, much harder than I thought it would. It is in many ways a tragic movie. It's not a movie for kids. So if you've not taken your kids to see it, I would advise that you not. And what it really reminds me of is that Batman is qualitatively different than just about any other superhero. See, you take Superman, you take Spider-Man, and you know what happened to them, they had traumas in their lives as well too. But their traumas made them superhuman. Their traumas made them supernatural. Batman's trauma, seeing his parents murdered when he was a small boy, just made him really, really human. He's not superhuman. In fact, he even takes the form in his heroic guise of what he fears the most. He bleeds, he can die, and his transformation comes about not through sci-fi, but through a moral vow that he will take his own private pain and not make it into a quest for vengeance, but make it into a quest for justice. In some ways, Batman's story reminds me of the Buddha story, a young and privileged man who in many ways lives a very sheltered life, who one day has come comes upon, or rather life comes upon him in such a way that he has a horrible trauma. And it is through this, not a desire to escape, not a desire to become more than human, but a desire to become fully human, that Batman finds his heroism. Now, The Dark Knight is a movie that touches on some incredible ethical quandaries in battling evil, especially in this age of terror, especially in this war of terror. And I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but it really is quite learned in some ways in terms of what they call just war theory. It talks about proportionality, about taking extraordinary measures. It asks the question, if we believe we have clean hands, if we believe we have good hands and we want to do battle against evil, how much can we do until we get to a point that we can no longer say our hands are good or clean? If you want to learn more about this, actually there's a great book I can recommend you. It's called Just and Unjust Wars by Michael Walzer. And that's as much as I want to say about that this morning. Just one word. Of course, one of the things that makes watching the film difficult is that we're watching Heath Ledger, who, of course, died before the movie came out. And he's going to get his Academy Award focus, as well he should. But frankly, that's because they robbed him the first time. How many of you have seen Brokeback Mountain? His Ennis Del Mar is perhaps the most unbelievable performance I have ever seen. You see, I think it was Philip Seymour Hoffman who won the Academy Award that week for Capote, and that was a great performance, but frankly, I've got to tell you, creation is better than replication. And the character that he created, Ennis Del Mar, had such depth and passion, and he did it without any of the histrionics that people seem to love in movies. So he should get the Academy Award nomination, and hopefully he gets it. It'll be a way of honoring his life. His Joker is an anarchist, a terrorist, and it is disturbing as disturbing can be. It is a picture of real evil. He needs Batman. He sees Batman and his twin because as he says to him at one point, 
Both of us, we love to transgress society's rules, but they are for very different ends. The Joker just loves to see stuff break for the sake of it being broken. He likes to cause pain to see what effect causing pain causes. But Batman, of course, he transgresses society's rules in the name of a higher love and a higher justice and a higher order. Now, the movie is all about limitations, our limitations as human beings, what happens when we bump up against our boundaries and what happens then. That's the challenge in the movie when people bump up against their limits. Do we ignore the limits, like Joker, become inhuman? Do we go mad from experiencing our limitations, our boundaries, kind of like the DA turned the villain two-faced in the movie? Or do we accept, and that is Bruce Wayne and Batman's challenge, that simply sometimes life is tragic? That simply sometimes there is not much we can do about the nature of things? That sometimes life wounds us as deeply as we can be wounded, and yet we continue. When I was watching the movie, I thought of the last line of a novel called Molloy by Samuel Beckett, who, if you've ever read him, you know he's not the most happy writer to ever put pen to paper. The last line of that novel, an interior dialogue with the main character, you must go on, I can't go on. I'll go on. That's simple perseverance. Even, and especially with the knowledge of our fragility, the frailty and the vulnerability that stands at the heart of what it means to be fully human, most fully alive. Now, Batman in the movie, if you have seen it, has a choice to make. Has a choice to make. It's like a Sophie's Choice kind of choice to make. And there will not be a happy ending. And this divides him right down the middle between Bruce Wayne on one side and Batman on the other. And while I was watching this movie, actually one name came to mind for me over and over and over again. It's the name Reinhold Niebuhr, who was probably the most famous theologian of the 20th century. It's the serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And we know how difficult that is to find that wisdom to know the difference. Probably my favorite reading from Reinhold Niebuhr goes like this. And there's humility and there's hope in there, but it's a hard-won hope. Nothing worth doing is completed in our lifetime. Therefore, we are saved by hope. Nothing true or beautiful or good makes sense in any immediate context of history. Therefore, we are saved by faith. Nothing we do, however virtuous, can be accomplished alone. Therefore, we are saved by love. And no virtuous act is quite as virtuous from the standpoint of our friend or our foe as from our own. Therefore, we are saved by the final form of love, which is forgiveness. Now, when Niebuhr wrote, I think he wrote 35, 40 books, they really just had one theme. All the great writers have one theme that they keep going over and going over and going over. For Niebuhr, it was this, that to be human, to be most fully human means to know two things, that we are caught we exist in a tension between our finitude and our freedom. We are finite creatures. We are subject to the whims of circumstance. We have beginnings. We have ends. And at the same time, we are remarkably free at the same time. Free to love. Free to care about something more than just our own lives. Free to even transcend our own lives 
who knows to what limit and to what end. Now, you trip too much one way or the other, and, well, that's when life becomes unbalanced. Niebuhr would say, I remember there was a story when I was in college of, um, probably was apocryphal, but college students like to do things like this. A student who had become so overcome, so overwhelmed after reading Thomas Mann's great novel, The Magic Mountain, a story of disease and healing and redemption, that he stayed up all night reading it and was so overcome that he clutched it to his chest and wandered out in the snow until someone found him there two hours later sobbing openly because he had had this vision of life somehow transformed. Now, perhaps he had this vision of his own freedom from reading this book. But in fact, you saw where it led him, out into the snow without a shirt on in the middle of the night. There is no solving this tension between the fact that we are finite creatures and the fact that we are also free. In the movie, that's the balance, that's the struggle between Bruce Wayne and Batman. And in the end, Batman doesn't solve anything. He saves the day. And, of course, you know what they're doing is they're setting it up for about a gazillion sequels as well, too. But really, I think there's a deeper wisdom other than just making money in this movie. It's that we have to face life, and we're called to oppose what is evil, and we're called to do good, and we're called to care and comfort each other. But to do so with clear eyes and without illusions. To do so with the full understanding and honesty of how difficult life can be. So that was the movie, and the week that followed it brought it all home for us and and for me. This past week began, as many of you know, with the shootings at the Unitarian Universalist Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. A madman, a depraved person, barging into a sanctuary where children were putting on a play for a summer Sunday service and killed two people. And as the story started to come out, we recognized that we were targeted. We who believe in justice and equality and equity and compassion and human relationships, we were targeted by this man because in his own words, he thought the liberals were doing too much damage to this country and he couldn't get to the liberals who were in charge. And so he was going to hit some liberals closer to home. Now, I'm not talking about political liberalism, and by the way, I have a lot of conservative friends, Christian conservatives, Republican conservatives. He doesn't represent them. You know, let's be clear about who opposes us. It is not people on the other side of the political idol. It's not that. But we as Unitarian Universalists, we have a long, long history of standing for what is right in this country and in this religion and in the society, and yes, there are many, many differences between this UU congregation and other UU congregation. That diversity is a wonderful thing, but there are many things that we hold in common, and what we hold in common was attacked last Sunday. And so I'm proud to be standing right here with you before you today, all of us together, being a Unitarian Universalist congregation because what we stand for cannot be killed. And then on Monday... I received news, and I know many of you received news, that was a lot closer to home and a lot closer to all of our hearts. That Hannah Robb, who was a child of this congregation in the last year, that she was killed by a drunk driver late on Saturday nights 
and her sister Mia, who was driving, was injured as well. Hannah was a sweet, talented 13-year-old girl. Sometimes in life, life makes no sense. And like many of you, I'm angry. I am angry that senseless things happen. I am angry that people do callous, thoughtless, awful things. I'm going to ask you one thing today, and this is something, a way that we can turn our anger into something productive. Please, I beg you, never, never, never drive while impaired. Do not let the people around you drive while they are impaired. No other family should have to experience what the Robs have experienced this week. And we know we cannot remove all evil from this world, but let us pledge this, that at least in this one circumstance, in this one case, that we will make responsible choices. I mean this, folks. I'm as serious as I can be. Please remember this moment. Remember how uncomfortable we all feel. Remember me looking at you. Please, I beg you. past week it has been my sad and sacred privilege to be with the family and to officiate at the funeral at Hannah's funeral this past Friday. Early in the week in an attempt to keep myself grounded and keep my head screwed on straight and get out of my head in many ways, it was I think late Monday afternoon, early evening, maybe Tuesday, and I decided I just needed to ground myself a little bit so I went out for a run. And it was a day sort of like today, beautiful and fragrant, and the world was green and growing, and everything just looked so vibrant. And I have to tell you, it just hurt. Have everything around us and around me looking so pristine, so perfect, and having the sense of all this unnecessary suffering and all this unnecessary pain in life. And I had my iPod on and the song I Shall Not Walk Alone by the Blind Boys of Alabama came on. You know that song, it's a gospel song probably within the last 10 years or so. And the contrast was just too much between what was growing and what was gone, between the beauty of this world and its immense sorrow. And so if you happen to be driving through Chestnut Hill about 630 Monday or Tuesday evening, you would have seen an odd sight. You would have seen a young, sweaty man with earbuds in his ear, sobbing to himself by the side of the Chestnut Hill Academy track. It was all I could do. E.B. White, who's the author of Charlotte's Web, said this, If the world were merely seductive, if the world were merely beautiful, that would be easy. If the world were merely challenging, merely only difficult, that would be no problem. But I arise in the morning torn between a desire to save the world and a desire to savor the world. This makes it hard to plan the day. There is no solving this puzzle. If it's all challenge and it's all struggle, 
Well, then we lose touch with the beauty and the peace and the goodness that is very much a part of our life and actually motivates us in the first place to want to change things for the better when there is challenge and struggle and strife and pain. Well, and if we live the other way, that life is just all sweet and savory and doesn't feel good to be on top when we are on top and that's the natural order of things, then we are guilty of the worst theological sin there is, which is triumphalism. The idea, and I've got to tell you, there's versions of this, and it is, excuse my language, a crap theology. There's versions of this on the left, and there's versions of this on the right, and it says that God picks the winners, and aren't we just blessed that we are the winners, and everything's good and natural with that way of being. When we live in this way, we break faith. We break faith with our world that needs us to be with the world as it is, and it's not always beautiful it is not always savory we lose touch with the sorrowful we lose touch with the suffering we lose touch with the oppressed or the abandoned or the lonely or the grieving or just the simply plain old broken folks that sometimes all of us are we think the world is just supposed to be great all the time we become arrogant in our victories and we are separated out from our brothers and our sisters and that is not what true spirituality is about The nature of the true spiritual life is to recognize the immense complexity of everything that is our life and to keep balance within ourselves between our finitude and between our freedom, between what is joyous and between what absolutely wounds us as deeply as we can be wounded as human beings. The job, our job in living, is to be able to receive life as it is. Not to deny it, but to receive it in all of its messiness And in all of its glory, in all of its complexity, and all of its pain, and all of its wonder. One of my favorite spiritual teachers is a Buddhist named Pema Chodron. She writes this. We think that the point is to pass the test or overcome the problem. But the truth is that things really don't get solved. They come together and they fall apart. Then they come together again and then they fall apart Again, life is just like that. But the healing comes. The healing comes from letting there be room for all of this to happen. Room for grief, room for relief, room for misery, and yes, room for joy. If we can learn to live this way, and it is hard we can learn to live this way, we will find a deeper and yes, even paradoxical strength that comes from touching the very heart of our frailty and our fragility of what it means to be human. It is a difficult choice right now. I've talked with a lot of you this week. I know that the tendency when we struggle, when there is suffering, when there is pain, is to want to defend ourselves at all costs, to want to start erecting boundaries between ourselves and life, to say there is too much and we want to retreat, to find a safe zone or a safe place. But you know it, I don't need to tell you. There is no safe place. There is only life. There is only life narrow or there is a life more abundant. And it is that life, the deeper life to which all of us are called, especially in the midst of what we're experiencing and what we're feeling today. We can live this way. What we understand is that as much as we want to, and as many times as there are in life that we wish things would be 
not as they are, that they would be otherwise. But we can ground ourselves in where we are. Then we can face that we no longer have to fight this life. It doesn't mean that we let injustice stand, and it doesn't mean that we grieve as deeply as we need to the sorrows of our hearts and the sorrows of our lives. But it means this, that we understand that what is matters. And because what is is here, this is our life, and there is no running away from it. And so instead of turning away, turning away from our brothers and sisters, turning away from ourselves when we struggle, we turn towards each other. We see the tears in each other's eyes as our own tears. We understand the hands that can hold. We understand the hearts that speak the same language. We do not turn away from each other because turning away only makes the difficult stuff that much more painful. What we find is courage. It is the hard-won courage of all who suffer. In time, we can have this, although it does not come easy. It does not come easy. Our UU ancestors called this, they called this salvation by character. Not salvation by believing the right thing about the right teacher in the right place at the right time. Not salvation by being amongst the winners. Not salvation of he who dies with the most toys wins but rather the salvation of being the kind of people who can face life in all of its complexity and still awaken, still be there, that we can give back to life the kind of presence that life needs from us. And I must tell you, life needs that presence from all of us right now for those people who are hurting in our midst. When we turn away from each other, we're just saying, no, it's too much. But you know what? It is not. It feels like it is, but it is not, because people need the strength that you have. If you are feeling charged full this morning, maybe not at your full 100%, but at 50%, then you know what? It is your job to reach out to people who are approaching zero. The charge of the soul is not just our own. It is from a source greater and bigger than all of us, and it is our job to share it, because when we share it, it magnifies in us. When we separate out, it diminishes. We are able to become in those moments exactly what the world needs us to be. A loving presence that equips us to face what needs to be faced. To find the deeper courage in all of our lives. Sometimes if it's just recognizing that the wideness of our lives is just as deep and just as wide as the holes in all of our hearts. We know our hearts can be broken only because our hearts are first able to love to begin with. That capacity does not expire, even though it feels like it would or it might. But rather, it grows us, it encourages us, and we find it in each other, and we find it in that source, whatever we call it, in which all our lives are enfolded and all of our lives are enclosed. Probably the most difficult thing I had to do this week, and by the way, this past week was not about me. I just happen to be talking about it right now. One of the most difficult things, but also one of the most powerful things that I had the privilege of doing this past week was reading and sharing Hannah's words at the funeral on Friday. Of course, when you hear something like this, 
it just makes the loss that much worse. Because a child capable of putting thoughts like this together is a child the world needs. This is from a poem she wrote called Limitless about her family. The memories we share enrich us all. Through the times I cried, they were there to break my fall. Because of them, my tears were dried. When laughter fills me up inside, they join in good spirits. A happier group you couldn't find. My family's strength has no limits. There are many things that have limits in our life. But truly, if we trust the way of love, and we trust what Hannah just taught us, we will find a strength beyond all limits. We will find a love and a way of being that is stronger than death. A love and a way of being that is stronger than fear. A love and a way of being that is stronger than anything we ever could have known. It takes a lot of trust to do that. Sometimes it seems like an impossibility. And that is why we gather. To remind ourselves of what might be impossible alone. Together can be shared. What Hannah is also talking about in this poem is that, of course, the only thing and the only things we get to keep in this life are the things that we first gave away. When we give away love, we build ourselves up. When we give away our courage, we allow others to walk without fear. When we build up our own spirits and give them away, we know that our life rests in something much greater than just us as an individual. We find, in trying to live this way, a fragile and yet grounded way of living. By the way, this is not a theology, and it's not a proposition, and it's not a theory, but it is a relationship. It is the heart of what we mean when we talk about having faith. It is choosing to stay in relationship in life, even when life breaks its faith in us, as it sometimes seems to do. When we choose to live in this way, we are living the deepest of the deepest of what religions can promise us. This past week, I think I have prayed more than I have ever prayed in my life. And it was not a prayer to or for anything, because I gave up that kind of prayer a long time ago. And if I wanted that kind of prayer, of course, you know what my kind of prayer would have been. It would have been a prayer for the kind of world in which madmen don't burst in on churches. And it would have been a prayer for the kind of world in which people don't go barreling down Route 100 and smash into children. But prayer does not do that. I wish it could. But instead, my prayers were this this week. That I prayed in and with, not for, but in and with the knowledge that our lives, all of them, can still be held. In and with the knowledge that all of us have a choice, and it's your choice to make today as well too. It is your choice to continue on the path of opening your hearts and opening your lives, yes, even to the point where they are breaking? Or is the choice to pull back? The choice to retreat from life? The choice to, and it's understandable, 
you know what? It makes sense in a certain way, doesn't it? It makes sense to pull back. But we're called to things sometimes that doesn't make sense because what happened to us this week, we don't have the kind of theology that can say it happened for a reason. Everything happens for a reason. I don't find those things palatable in the best of times. And I certainly don't believe it now. So this is the prayer. The prayer that I pray for all of you on your behalf, if you will. That we can all stay in relationship to and with this life. That we all can be here right now. As much as we may want to flee. Please be here with me in love. Be here for the Rob family. Be here for all those people who have experienced pain beyond measure, beyond logic, beyond reason. We need each other so much at this time. We need each other so deeply. I'm going to close with one of my favorite quotes. It's actually not associated with this guy too often. It's from Oscar Wilde, who towards the end of his life suffered a great deal. And from it he learned. From it he learned the deeper wisdom of staying in touch with that tension between our freedom and our finiteness. Staying in touch when we want to run away. He said, he who can look at the loveliness of the world and share its sorrow. He who can look, or she, he who can look at the loveliness of the world and share its sorrow and realize something of the wonder of both is in immediate contact with divine things and has got as near to God's secret as anyone can get. Something of the wonder of both. The loveliness and the sorrow, the joy and the pain. Folks, we are called to all of it. If we accept one part, we have to accept the other. You can't have one without the other. We wish it were so. But we're called to a deeper faith and we're called to a deeper path. The wonder of everything. This is our religion. This is what we remain faithful to. Amen. I love you. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Name beyond all names. May our love be enough. May our love be enough so that we can go out into this life and into this world and meet it where it is and meet other people where they are. May our love be enough. It may not seem like much. It may seem even pointless. It may seem as if... What can we do? May our love be enough. May our love be enough for all in pain this day. May our love be enough for our own hearts to grow again. May our love be enough that we are reminded that there are things stronger than death and stronger than despair. May our love be enough. Take each other's hands. May our love be enough. May our love be enough. Stronger than the nonsense. Stronger than that which makes no sense. 
stronger than that which injures us. Our love is enough. Amen, and may it be so. Actually, we're gonna um, we're gonna change the the song we plan to do, so we don't have the lyrics for it. But it's it's Amazing Grace. I think many of you know it. Okay, please rise as you're able.
start out this morning, I want to tell you about the vision that I have. I'm doing it As in, seeing stuff that ain't there. Or maybe it was. That's your call. It was in 2002 at the Service of the Living Tradition at the Annual General Assembly of the Unitarian Universalist Association. Every year at the Service of the Living Tradition, we mark the rites of passage of all ordained clergy, of those who are just entering the ministry, of those who have retired from active service in the ministry, and those ministers who in the past year have died. Deep in my heart that year, full in my heart that year, was Reverend Roger Cameron. Roger was a great old ministerial soul. I only got to know him a few years, the last couple of years at the end of his life, and it was in his late 60s when he passed on. And even though we only knew each other a few years, I wasn't unfortunately able to be with him by his bedside as he was dying. But he left explicit instructions with both of his sons that he wanted me to give one of the eulogies at his funeral. It was a great honor in my life because Roger was known and beloved by many, many people. Not a lot of the other generation of that older generation of male ministers had really reached out to me, frankly, all that much. Most of my models in ministry were women. But Roger really extended the hand and his heart of fellowship towards me, and I took it. I used to drive up the coast in Florida where I lived and pick him up in his 55-plus community, and we used to go to spring training games together. Long after the last pitch, we would sit there in the sands as the ushers were sweeping up around our feet, and he would tell me stories of his ministry. I felt like I was being given a great oral history of our movements and of this one particular wonderful man. He told me about how he got fired in 1967 for trying to integrate the rural church in Tennessee that he served as a Presbyterian before he became Unitarian Universalist. One of the other great things about Roger was that he had over 30 years sober when he died. But he wasn't above at all sharing the story of his misguided youth, trying to let me know about the ups and the downs of life in the clergy and of his life in particular. At that service of the living tradition, Roger's name was going to be mentioned aloud. They call it Roll Call. Awful name. But I was waiting. I was waiting to hear his name and, you know, Callan, C, was right there at the beginning. The names are embedded in a larger prayer of gratitude. Gratify, gratitude for the lives that have been lost and the lives that have given themselves for so many years in service. So I sat there in the service. Eyes closed. Listening. Listening. A long list out here. Roger's name, the names of other people whose names I recognized only slightly, and many names I didn't recognize at all. And then it was weird. I began having this odd, ocular kind of thing going on in my head. Even with my eyes closed, it was kind of like a fuzzy PowerPoint slide show was being projected on the back of my eyelids. And no, I haven't taken anything this morning, I swear. <laughs> what I saw, one after another, after another, after another, was faces. Clear and distinct faces. I took off my glasses and literally, you know, did one of these. What's wrong? Something going on in my head? Closed my eyes again. Closed my eyes and rejoined prayer, rejoined that roll call. And there were the faces again. 
one after another after another after another. But this time I didn't try and wipe it out. I just let this unexpected private movie run inside of my eyelids. The prayer continued. And now we commit those spirits who have served with perseverance, with compassion, with love, this beloved community and many beloved communities. We commit them into your hands, O oh God. We know that they have labored long, and now they have rest. Now they are at peace. And the face is kept being shown. Was this God? Was this the Spirit? Was it my subconscious acting up and bringing all these names before me? I had no idea. But what I experienced when I just let the faces roll on and on and on was an amazing sense of tranquility, an amazing sense of peace, an amazing sense that there is a connection that death cannot sever and time cannot bridge. Sitting there as the prayer went down, I felt fully blessed, fully alive. My soul was lifted up and into a place of the deepest peace I have ever, ever experienced, I tell you. The prayer ended. We stood to sing. The faces left my eyes. But my own face, my own face was smiling. Broadly as I could. So I ask you, was this God? I ask you, was it just an overactive imagination on my part that didn't know how to say goodbye to a friend that I didn't want to say goodbye to? Maybe that's what you're thinking. I don't know. Maybe the question is, was it real? Was it true? Could it be trusted? That's a slightly different question. Is it true versus can it be trusted? But first, just a word about visions. Maybe some of you have had them. Let's talk about them at some point. I'd love to hear about your vision. If you've ever maintained a regular contemplative spiritual practice, at some point, I guarantee you this, you will experience an altered state of consciousness. Do not be alarmed. <laughs> your normal state of being will resume eventually. Just ride the wave while you're on it. It's pretty, pretty cool. But also, don't make too much of it. It's kind of like this story. A student was meditating one day when he had a powerful vision. As he was sitting on his meditation cushion, he had the sense, the real sense, that the Buddha, the enlightened, awakened one himself, was sitting right there next to him, meditating with him, breath by breath, moment by moment. And the student was so enthralled with this, by this experience that he got up off the meditation cushion, ran excitedly to his teacher and said, Wise one, I have seen the Buddha himself. He was meditating with me. This is such a wonderful thing. Is this true? Is this enlightenment? Have I reached it? Have I realized my whole Buddha nature? I mean, he was panting, he was so excited. Thought how blessed he was that he was visiting in this way. He couldn't wait to hear how amazing the teacher would think it was as well. The teacher calmly turned to the student and responded, just go back to your meditation seat, resume your breathing, and I'm sure the Buddha will go away. <laughs> Don't get blown too far off course by all the esoteric stuff and all the esoteric promises of spirit. Spirituality finally is for the everyday. It's less for the mountaintop than it is for life down every day in the valley. But what about that vision? And perhaps some of the visions that you've had over the years. Can it be trusted? 
is there enough evidence to believe it? Is there enough evidence to think that maybe we were being touched in some deep way by the Spirit? And it's here that we learn there is a difference between faith and belief. Stoddy McLennan, some of you might know as a UU minister, he's a chaplain at Stanford University, and he's the author of a great book called Finding Your Religion that was really popular over a decade ago. He says this about the difference between faith and belief. Faith is not just a particular belief, the holding of certain ideas, which is a function of the mind alone. Beliefs can be expressed in propositional forms to which adjectives true and adjective false can be attached. Faith, by contrast, is deeper. It is the opposites of nihilism and despair. Faith may or may not include beliefs, but it is much larger. It is the ability to experience our universe and our lives as a meaningful place. Having faith means that our lives hold together and make sense at a deep level, rather than just seeming absurd or playing out the days. Therefore, your religion is something you not only think about, but sing and dance and eat and paint and sculpt your way into. You find your religion. To find your religion, you must engage all of your senses and not just the mind that says yes or no. You should feel it as well as explain it, hear it as well as see it, taste it as well as smell it, and hear it. We often talk about in Unitarian Universalism that we're a creedless religion, and that is true. Those of, you, those of you who joined, those of us who joined this morning, had to pledge fidelity to no creed. You had a sense that you could grow here and you found here a people, but you did not have to pledge fidelity, yes or no, to a creed, something like the Nicene or the Apostolic. But the original meaning of creed actually gets to what faith is all about. The original Latin word for creed is a cognate of the word part. It's also related in some ways to the Hindu word for faith, which I love, is sradha. It means that what we set our hearts upon. Think of it. So often people ask, do you have faith? Have you been saved? You have faith as if it is a content to possess. As if it was a content you could hold and sort of say, well, I'm at 90%, I'm going to get that last 10% of content, and I'm going to be 100% faithful. That's not the way that faith is, though. Faith is the things that we set our hearts upon. Creeds are what we believe with our fullest being and then go about living our lives so that our lives and our steps and our hearts and our entire self is lived at its best in accord with what we hold to be most true about ourselves. And in that way, it's really easy to understand. Maybe not where our vision comes from, but what it means. What did my vision mean? or any religious experience. What does it mean? This point is well illustrated by a story, probably apocryphal, about Beethoven. It is said that after the composer had just composed another masterful concerto, he sat at the piano for an audience of friends, a private audience, to reveal his latest work. When he finished, they of course applauded. And after, one friend asked him, what does it mean? Beethoven said nothing. He uttered no answer. He sat back down at the piano. He played the concerto through from start to finish exactly as it was before. And he said, that is what it means. Things have a value in and of themselves. In that moment, at that service, I experienced a profound sense of peace, of joy, 
of a life or a moment that is not always my own, beyond fear, beyond doubt, and even beyond death. That is what it meant. There's always a tendency in our lives, there's always that tendency to want to secure our faith and make it into a belief, saying that somehow it has to belong to this particular slot or this particular content, or it's not really real, we think we can't trust it. We want to prove the value of spirituality against doubt to prove its validity. There's so much hype these days. There is so much hype about the resurgence of that old, ancient debate between faith and science. And old scores are being settled. It's like Galileo's Revenge. A few weeks ago, there was a New York Times Sunday Magazine article that had a story about how faith could be justified from an evolutionary perspective. I can't possibly go through all the different arguments because one after another after another. But what it came down to was basically that some theorized that faith in God was an evolutionary accident. That what we had to do was learn how to trust each other to grow into this life. And so what we had was a misapplied understanding of the universe. Well, some thought in the article that faith was a helpful adaptation, to use the evolutionary language, a helpful adaptation to reality. But in our neck of the woods, really close by actually, there's another perspective. New Penn professor named Mark Newberg, what he's done is really cool. He has studied the actual brain scans, the physiology of spirituality, neurotheology as it is called. He studied the brain scans of monks at meditation. What he's found is that at the apex of meditation, when the meditator felt that they were truly most at one with the universe, most felt that sense of, break apart the word atonement, what does it mean? At one meant. That sense of unity, that sense of communion. He studied the brain scans of these monks at meditation, and what he found was amazing. The part of the brain, forget what it's called, mine's working, I guess, <laughs> that differentiates self from object, other from ourselves, subject from object. This part of the brain flatlined. There was nothing going on there. It led to that sense of complete and profound unity and so Dr. Newberg, what he thinks is that we are hardwired for God, or more generally for spiritual experience. That straight out of the packaging, the basic stuff of our lives, we are ready for spirituality. Even Sam Harris, as some of you might know, I respect his work, I often don't agree with it. He's one of the most voracious and sometimes vicious critics of religion. He practices a form of Buddhism on a regular basis, and even he says that there is no proof that consciousness the gift of human consciousness is reducible to our brains. That there may be something deeper that holds all of this together. He leaves it as an open question. So which is it then? Which is it? Is religion the natural expression of our inborn capacity to know something of God and know something of spirit? Or is it an illusion handed down from generation to generation like a bad genetic habit? Well, we're here in a spiritual community this morning. So we can probably gauge a certain number of your answers. question is, are there reasons to believe? Yes, there are. Are there reasons to doubt? Yes, there are. How could it be both? Well, Einstein put it this way, that the opposite of a small truth is a falsehood. The opposite of a large truth is another large truth. I don't think we'll get these questions ever settled about where we come from or where the ideas of our spirit comes from. And that's where the important work of religion starts. 
after the vision, after the epiphany experiences, which I hope you have been blessed to experience, or maybe you will experience at some point in your time here at Wellsprings. After the vision, we have to return to life. And there we find the evidence for whether it was true or not. As the writer Jack Kornfield says, after the ecstasy, you still have the laundry to do. There's still the basic stuff of life, the everydayness of the everyday, just plain old existence, calling us out, though, if we listen to it, to be something real, to love, to be meaningful, to know one another, not just playing out our days despairingly or waiting for the esoteric stuff of spirituality on their hand to come visit us once more. I think that religion works its magic when, frankly, it is at its least magical at all. Spiritual life is integrating, on the most profound level, the realization of the high points back into life. Great. I had this amazing vision a few years ago. It continues to stay with me. It continues to bless me. So what, though? So what if I can't learn to be patient in back of the person in the supermarket line who is picking out all of her dog food coupons and can't seem to straighten them up? So what if I am stuck in traffic and the person in back of me is laying on the horn and I want to, well, you know. So what if I, and fill in the blanks for yourself what applies here, so what if I cannot in the everyday learn to be a better minister, a better husband, better son, better person. That is the practice for the everyday, and that's the place where our visions of life beautiful have to be, if they're going to be meaningful and trusted, integrated into our daily existence. I think that finally people don't want to know about the content of our visions and of our religious euphoria, if you know it, until they know that you can see their particular lives. The visions are so far out of the horizon at times. The more important vision is what we have here amongst us. The ability to acknowledge, the ability to see, the ability to recognize, and not to put on the blinders that want to say, I'm waiting for the next big thing. I'm waiting to get past you so I can move on to what's really going to make me happy. Here amongst us is where life is and where the spirit is. Faith can only finally really be shown. It can be pointed to with words, like fingers pointing to the moon, as we talked about a few weeks ago. But faith is a way of living in the world. It's not simply a way of thinking. And all true big religion, liberal or orthodox, or dogmatic or otherwise, all great religion is about show, not tell. There is more truth in what we are shown than in what we are told. If we are told something, well then we can accept it or reject it intellectually. We can say yes to this belief or no to that belief. But it's not really our own. When we talk about living a life of integrity as one of our core values, says here at Wellsprings, what we are talking about is showing and practicing our faith on a daily basis. So it's not really much good to tell the world that we believe in hope. Rather, live a life that is hopeful for all the world to see. Don't tell the world that we believe in the power of love, but live a life your life in such a way so that love is who you are. Don't tell the world that we believe you do in God, but live such a life that God lives through you and through your actions, and the divine is made manifest in our world through our behavior and through who we are. Finally, the most powerful faith is when you show other people who you are at your best. Show them the true product of your faith. 
the true product of your love. Psalm 42 talks about deep that calls unto deep. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. The deep that calls unto deep. There is so much in our lives that is superficial, that is transitory, that frankly we can dispense pretty easily with. But still, and I don't think we'd be here today, and certainly we wouldn't be having a new member Sunday, but some basic level, finally, we weren't suckers for authenticity. If what we wanted, really, really wanted, was something real. We try to be suckers for authenticity here at Wellspring, and committed to honoring that life of integrity. Finally, all truth is incarnated, all faith is lived out in our limbs. Gandhi put it this way, be the change that you want to see. Become the change that you want to see. In all things, the Spirit can speak in you, asking us to pay attention. Elizabeth O'Connor wrote a great book about 30 years ago called The Eighth Day of Creation. She said that when we really live in concert with our spiritual gifts, our deepest understanding of ourselves, we become committed on an ever deeper level. She says it becomes harder then to hang back, to be loose or aloof and thinking that goodness or justice or mercy or compassion or kindness is something we can practice when we have enough time. The time is here and the time is now to begin becoming the change that we want to see. We do it in small ways, the smallest of ways, but here amongst us. And when you leave here out in life, there is the crucible. Frederick Feekner, who's a novelist, said this way, what makes me a believer, finally, is not a creed, but the fact that from time to time there have been glimpses. Glimpses I've had of something extraordinary and beyond the realm of the immediate. You encounter the holy, though, in various forms, which unless, unless you have your eyes open, you may not notice. Unless we have our eyes open, we may not notice. There is something that we are called here to honor as a religious community, something beautiful, something ineffable, something that finally doesn't have a name. We ourselves, in our beliefs, our fingers pointing to the moon. But we know that we can answer that hope with our daily practice. We know that we can answer that belief with our sense that we honor the beauty that is within us, the love that is within us. So perhaps sometimes when we wait, or we're bored, or edgy, or another thing is coming down the pipe. We can turn our thoughts back to attention. We are partners with creation community. We are partners in the dance. We are not masters, and we are not passive. We are partners in the dance, and we are invited to take up that dance. And so in this day of membership, I offer you this Whitman poem. Whitman, who is the truest universalist that I ever knew. He said this about each of you. Each of you, and so it's true for all of us, not just individually, it's true for all of us. The sum of all known reverence I add up in you. And in you. And in you. And in you. I add those parts, it's not very good. All architecture is what you do to it when you look upon it. All music is what awakens from you when you are reminded by the instruments. The wonder everyone sees in everyone else and the wonders that fill each minute of time forever. It is for you. It is for you, whoever you are. It is no farther from you than your hearing and your sight are from you. It is no farther 
then your hearing and your sight are from you. So let us be the change that we want to see in this world. Let us recognize that the things of the Spirit are not far away, they are close at hand. The old Native American way of talking about this says that there are inside of us two dogs. Two dogs, one is kind and loving and generous and noble and loyal, and the other, mean, harassable. Doesn't want to hang with anyone. And it's asked of an old man at one point, well, which of these two dogs is most important? Which of these two dogs is most powerful? And his answer? The one that I feed. Let us feed ourselves together. Amen. We live in blessing. Keep me in your heart for a while. I thought about that song this past week. When I read this email posted on Andrew Sullivan's blog, the journalist blog, it's just so simple and so moving. And the author was anonymous, didn't know who he was. And that's really, really fitting. Because change just a few of the facts of the story you're about to hear. And the voice could be, and probably at some point will be ours. Any one of us, any one of you. Wednesday will be the third anniversary of the day my wife Becky died. Battled young cancer for a year and a half. She was diagnosed at the age of 30. No risk factors. And the thing about Becky is that she was never ever dying of cancer, but always living with it. She taught her classes on Friday. She was an assistant professor of mathematics, and she died on Sunday. She spent an hour in the hospital on the day she died designing a project for her students the next semester. She wasn't in denial about the prospects of metastatic lung cancer. At the same time, she spent her days doing the things that meant her days worth living, that made her days worth living. I've read a lot of comments, especially in the past couple days. I've read a lot of comments about how having a positive attitude and continuing to move forward with your life gives you the best chance to live longer. I don't know about that. I hope it's true. It's not always true. What I learned from being Becky's partner during this time is that we don't have as much control as we'd like to about how long we live, but we do have a lot of control over how we live. She continued living with cancer the way she had lived before being diagnosed. She was the same mother, the same wife, the same friend, the same teacher, but sometimes she was lugging around an oxygen suit. If I found out today that I had one year to live, and that meant I would change the way I spend my days, then I need to change the way I spend my days now. It is my hope that having someone in the public eye, being so brave, so open, and so grateful for the blessing of this day, might cause many other people to examine their lives as well. Now, of course, this anonymous person writing on this blog is responding to the 60 Minutes interview with Mr. Edwards last week that many of you saw, and the words were such an affirmation of life, in the face of life's deep fragility. Not hubris, not pride, not denial either, just simple courage, facing what we can know and accepting what we can't know. It can be such a tricky thing to find that balance between our ignorance and our insight. 
between what we're so certain of and the kinds of things that we can never be certain of. The art of living with illness or the art of living well at all, regardless of how old you are, regardless of what situation in life you find yourself, regardless if you just got a great checkup yesterday. The arts in living arrives in the poise of learning to live with honest hope. Sober hope. True hope. Illusions. Now, based on her interview, at least, we saw it last week, Elizabeth Edwards seems to have achieved this kind of equilibrium. But it's new and it's early, and let's face it, she's a politician's wife. There's always a little bit more ease in front of the camera, perhaps. The darker hours, the more challenging ones will, of course, come after. The ones we don't get to see, the ones we should never get to see. Often fear and hope Uncertainty and courage, they collide together, and it can be dizzying when you live in between those times. We're at a season right now, the intersection. Things collide in springtime, because we're at a time of beginnings and a time of endings. Final things and first things. Spring is a planting season, we know, but the harvest, well, that comes much later on. March in like a lion, out like a lamb, a time of contrast, sometimes extreme. 70 degrees a couple weeks ago on Monday, and by Sunday we had to cancel church because the sidewalks out here were encased in ice. It's hard to know what to depend on in this season. Dress for cold or warmth, bring an umbrella for sunshine or, or rain. Better to want to keep dry. Just Not sure what to expect this season. Not sure what to count on. One of the things I can count on is tomorrow's new day. One of my favorite days of the year, but I'm a Yankees fan. Hope is a different thing for a Yankees fan, for those of us who root for the Bronx Bombers. As has been said uncharitably of people like me, rooting for the Yankees has all the thrill of rooting for Microsoft. Actually, the old quote was IBM, but that doesn't make any sense anymore. Sometimes it can feel like rooting for the big, bad bully on the block. But if I were a Phillies fan, and I'm fond of that team, that's where hope might feel a little bit more dangerous. I mean, come on. All those years, all those false promises, all those quick starts and bad endings, or bad endings and, and, and good starts and good endings, excuse me. False hopes and near misses. So being a Phillies fan is like, and frankly, I think spiritually being a Phillies fan is much more rich than being a Yankees fan. I have a little bit of spiritual envy right there, and it was true. About three of three or four of my closest friends in the world are Red Sox fans, which up to a few years ago was the most spiritually rich person you could be in the world. Now it's Cubs fans, I think. As far as I know, T.S. Eliot was not a baseball fan, but he wrote the perfect opening words for opening day, capturing that feeling of tentative hope. Cubs fans read this. April is the coolest month. Reading lilacs out of the dead land, mixing memory and desire, stirring dull roots with spring rain. Winter kept us warm, covering earth with forgetful snow, eating a little light with dried tubers. So much hope, and so many possibilities when I know it's talking about. Dare to trust. 
But anyway, it's saying is that spring erupts in all sorts of amazing and unexpected ways. In life, in winter, it's assured. It may not have been much. It may have been little. But at least that meagerness we could count on. At least that small amount was ours. That scantiness collides with the amazing abundance of the season we're about to enter. It's a season of awakening and a new life alarm is going off. But rather, perhaps, sometimes we've got to sleep up. Say, not quite yet. Not quite right now. A professor of mine years ago at seminary, she called this the difference to what the great theologian Paul Tillich called the anxiety of non-being, which is the fear of our lives being exterminated. She called it the anxiety of being. Because hope lifts us up. We have the fear, the anxiety, that can also let us down. So dare we hope. Spring has all this invitation to us. A lot of us take to the road, especially you can see that today. Spring break, travel, start new things, open up the windows to let out what was shut in. And so we head out into the open road of the soul. This is a season for pilgrims. This is a season for travelers. In Christianity and Judaism, two of the great faiths of the world that we are most directly descended from, on this time in the liturgical calendar, today is Palm Sunday, when Jesus completes his ministry on the dusty back roads of ancient Israel and enters Jerusalem. This week also marks the start of Passover, when the ancient Israelites left the land of bondage in Egypt and began their journey towards the promise, towards the promise, the hope, the land of milk and honey. I classically understood both these stories are comedies. This picture does sound like comedy. Not ha-ha comedy. But they both have happy endings. Within the stories themselves, both of them end up okay. A week after Palm Sunday, the gospel of Jesus rises from the grave. Definitely not proud. For the Israelites, eventually all that wandering does deliver them to the promised land. But that's at the end of the story. And the Israelites, well, they had to wait for a year for it to arrive. Before Jesus and before the Israelites arrive at that appointed place, it's the rigors of the journey that define who they are. Greeted with palm leaves upon entering Jerusalem, on this Sunday we are told, the hope of triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the hope of the beginning for those who believed he was the Messiah, that this would lead to the age, the promised age of peace. Heralded it was. At the end of that week, Jesus finds himself hanging on the cross, crucified by the Romans, left to die like a common criminal. The Israelites, well, it goes on and on and on for them. Their pursuers and the persecutors drowned in the Red Sea, we know from the story. No more songs of slavery to sing. But they've barely taken three steps as a free people, and what do they do? Start to complain. Oh, we don't like the manna from heaven. It's good stuff to eat. It's too hot out here. We'll go back. At least Egypt, we knew what that was. At least the meager life in Egypt, we could count on that. It was winter, even if it wasn't cold in Egypt for the Israelites. They started to yearn, as many of us do. The devil that they knew, rather than grasp the hand of those hopeful and uncertain angels. Maybe slavery wasn't so bad, they think. And they start to know what we know as well. That living a free life, living a free faith, is insecure. It can be frightening. At least their security and confinement, freely, newly found, seems to broaden the horizon of possibility to the breaking point at some time. So much is present, so much is there, so much hope. And freedom also shakes the foundation of the ground upon which you walk. The earth can be unsteady. It's like the old man Brooks in the movie The Shawshank Redemption. Remember him? 
locked up for so long behind bars, he can't live with freedom. He can't live without the walls and the bars defining who he is. It's disorienting to move from the dark and closeted world of the winter, whether it's winter real out there or the winter here in our hearts. It's disorienting to move from that closeted world to the open road. Because of this, it's said that the ancient cartographers drawing out maps for wayfarers in the open seas illustrated all unknown portions at the end of the map, at the end of the world that they knew, with these words, Here there be dragons. Here there be dragons. At the edge of what they knew, there the monsters were. In the deserts, the wandering Israelites, in the entrance to the holy city like Jerusalem, in any authentic journey where the road is not clear, there are going to be folks, dragons. When the dragons confront us on the open road to Seoul, we may think that we don't have the strength to face them. And then, like the ancient Israelites, when you start to think, why exactly did you do Why did you start out? And of course, we know that the greatest place where the monsters are, they're not out there. They're always in fear. Inside of our own hearts, inside of our own selves. Because out there, at least, the monsters can be captured or killed. But when the dragons live in here, inside of each of us, they're the dragons that have the name of doubts or despair. Because what urged us out on the open road was hope. And because that hope is a little bit tenuous, the dragons start to say, Why'd you do it? Why'd you start? Why'd you try? Was the road that we took really worth it? The dragons that dwell within us, too, are trickier creatures than the ones we can capture or kill. Because if we try to capture or kill the dragons inside of us, guess who else goes? It's a two-for-one deal. We do, too. The dragons inside of us to death, we put part of ourselves to death as well, too. Tom Waits sang it this way, If I exercise my devils, well, my angels may leave, too. And actually, it was the poet Rilke who said it, but if you know Tom Waits' voice, you can hear it in your mind. When Tom Waits is singing about devils, I get the sense that he really knows what he's talking about. The dragons will come. And if they can't be killed outright, well, then they can be faced honestly. But this takes courage. It's still a risk. It takes practice. It takes a moment to sit with our dragons. Get to know your dragon's name. Maybe the one you're bearing with you today. Get to know your dragon's name. Turn to it, just like in our greeting, and shake its hand. Could this be meeting yourself? Get to know it. You may find, you probably will find, that like the old fable, the mouse realizes that the bellowing monster, that bellowing lion that she was so afraid of, the monster just has a thorn in his paw want some help. With your help, the monster can be killed. The thing is, in our life, we're the mouse that is frightened, and we're the monster that bellows both at the same time. We are simultaneously timid and scared and loud and proud. So don't run away. It's no good, right? Don't yearn for the quiet slumber of winter covered in the forgetting snow. Face it. Face the monster even when we might and you might be wanting to be busy doing so many other things. Because traveling, traveling that path, and riding the dragon all the way down, is the only key there is to true love and true self-acceptance. This is how Carl Jung, who was probably the great first psychiatrist to wed the insights of religion with psychology, he described his patients who really had found it, who had found health and wholeness as individuals. 
He described the ones who had ridden their monsters all the way down and found strength within themselves that they did not know that they had. The ones who had learned to live beyond fear. The ones who had come to know that life is both light and shadow and that they cannot be divided. The ones who had become, as we would say, whole no longer divided against themselves. He described it this way. They came to themselves. They could accept themselves. They were able to be reconciled to themselves. And they were reconciled to adverse circumstances and events. This is almost like what we used to say in church. This expression. They have made their peace with God. They have sacrificed their own will. They have submitted themselves to the will of God. Submission? It sounds good. I want to do that. Not what the religious liberals do. We're choosers here. We choose our lives. Well, maybe submission doesn't mean giving up. Maybe submission doesn't mean giving up hope. It's not what a survivor does. It's not what Elizabeth Edwards is seeming to do. But submission really means to accept the conditions of life. To accept that life is in a certain place no matter how much we might wish it to be elsewhere. To give oneself over to it. That is to submit. And in submitting we find courage. We take part because we know that finding part is not a weak thing. Hope makes our hearts beat strong and able to live in the presence of risk. I came across just a couple days ago this poet, Kate Waits. She's a professor I knew some years ago. And she was also a runner, and yesterday I did my own 10 miles preparing for my upcoming half marathon. But the conditions that I ran in yesterday weren't anything like what she's describing in this poem. It's called The Going Out, and it's her thought about riding 10 miles, about running 10 miles. And the subtitle in parentheses really clarifies what's at stake here. It's called The Going Out from Lincoln, Nebraska, at 40 degrees below zero. 40 degrees below zero. He starts. I always seem to go out too far. The road stretches clear and inviting before me, challenging my body's limits, testing a heart's willingness to drive itself yet another mile. And she finds that the going out is the easy part. But then she finds the hills. Seem always to take me to the edge of myself, daring me to take them coming off a languishing level strip of road, catching me a little unawares. She begins to find the surprise that all true traveling always continues. She continues onward, step after step, breath after breath, one after another after another, thinking that she can run over and through the pain that she feels forever, and also postpone that moment where she turns around. And the poem continues. Five-mile turnaround comes quick and sharp, with a slap of the stinging air across my naked face, bringing tears to my eyes, surprised by caressing, supportive wind turned treacherous now warning me that the run back may be a mortal matter. Working her way back, step by step, pace by pace, breath by breath, in the frigid cold now, wondering what propels her to have set out at all to begin with. Why'd she take this run? She comes close now to the end of her journey and concludes. Not until safety appears and the finish line in the distance I can see. And I revel in the venture that tries my spirit so, or wonder, or wonder how far I may yet go tomorrow. How far I may yet go tomorrow. The end of her run, the 
she's almost come to find the end of herself, she finds in the endurance of that uncertainty, in the engagement of the risk, she finds fraud, finds the fullest expression of herself. She can rejoice in what she has accomplished, and then, having been out on the open road before and faced the dragon of fear out there, what's she going to do? Tomorrow she's going to set out to face the dragon once more and find herself ever more. How far may we yet go tomorrow? But here at Wellsprings, we're a new community, just beginning. There are risks, there are imperfections. Launching a new church, frankly, the odds of it, I tell you, it's like starting a new restaurant. It's like starting a new business. Always risks. Always hope. And because of that, we're here for a purpose. We're here for a reason. We believe that progressive religion can be just as powerful a force for real life change and for making people of purpose as much as dogmatic religion claims that it can make and produce people of purpose. But folks, i got to tell you, some say this can't be so. That our kind of faith can't bring true comfort and healing. It's just a place for people to come and ponder some interesting things and think about stuff. And we believe, we believe in this kind of faith, our kind of faith, can call forth the best from us. And also will call forth our dragons. Our faith has sometimes been called the last stop on the train that ultimately reaches the Sunday morning golf course or the Sunday morning newspaper. But we believe that we are home for seekers. For those who fear that eternal call to peace and wholeness and goodness. It may not be the language that was spoken 3,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago or 500 years ago. The language will come 500 years from now. But it is the same eternal call to spiritual life. The ancient promise of life abundant and life fulfilling. And so this holy week, yes, is a holy week for us as well. Because we do not know how far we will go yet tomorrow, the day after that, and the day after that. We don't know, and we're going to follow that call. The great thing is there's no absolute map to where this is going to take us. It is the open road. We are better than that. We have the true north. We have the true north of our hopes. We have the true north of an orientation to the sense that life can be whole. In spite of all the things that want to fragment us, in spite of all the things that want to divide us, in spite of all the things, including ourselves, that want to say it can never all hang together. Yes, it can. That's the promise. The promise is all peace and wholeness. Because we don't go into the wilderness of planting this church, and we don't go into the wilderness the rest of our lives without preparation. We don't go without preparation if we remember what brought us out on the open road to begin with. The sacred quality of our lives is not a figment. The dream of expanding the circle of hope wider than it has ever, ever been drawn is not an illusion. And the feeling of our hurts, our hang-ups, our habits, our sorrows, and our suffering. The feeling of these things is not a lie. These things do not easily. Not without toil and sweat and tears and sober hope. But just as the wilderness of the unknown is real, so too is the promised land real as well. So travelers, I must invite you. It's my joy to invite you. Take part in this pilgrim season. 
take part. The road is long and the journey always uncertain and we're going to meet dragons along the way. But there is that other side. There is that other side that makes our steps here now sure and certain. The best we can do is to say we'll find it together. That we'll keep on keeping on. That we'll be grateful for the kind of people that we are that get to gather every single week and celebrate and mourn and be comforted and listen to the ancient and eternal voice of the Holy calling us evermore. So today being Easter, I thought I'd give you some of the Easter story. At least the biblical account. Here it is. It's from Matthew 28. You can follow along up there. After the Sabbath of the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descending from heaven came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. The appearance was like lightning and the clothing was white as snow. For fear of him, the guards shook and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been raised, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples, He has been raised from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. This is my message for you. So they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came to him, took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. So I entered my senior year at boarding school just up the road here at the Hill School. I arrived to find one important thing missing. It was my roommate, Ian. He had had a routine physical because he was a long-distance runner. They had found, literally the day before school began, a hole in his heart. Seventeen years old, about that big. Next day he went in for open heart surgery. Now at this point in our lives, our biggest concern was frankly where we were going to get into college. So this sort of threw a new wrinkle into it and it really stayed with me. Ultimately, Ian was absolutely fine, but it really, really stuck with me. So many years later, when I had the opportunity to actually witness an open-heart surgery, I leapt at it. It was during my first year of hospital chaplaincy over the summer, and the facts were this. It was a quadruple bypass. A man was going in to have four veins or arteries taken from his legs and grafted onto his heart because the ones that were in his chest already were blocked. We were sort of like in that Seinfeld episode, perched above Looking down, we didn't have any junior mints, though. <laughs> sort of this octagonal kind of structure, looking down, and except for the play-by-play -play of the nurse, the cardiac nurse who was there, telling us what we were seeing, the rest of the time was in absolute silence. And we couldn't see the man who the operation was on. He was covered here and also, well, covered, you know, here, you know, decorum and all that. But other than that, he was spread out on the table, ready for us to take a look at him. His body sort of swathed in that plum kind of ointment, that antiseptic. And at one point, I won't get too graphic here, I spread open his chest. And there it was, beating. His heart. 
Now, some of you may know the way that open heart surgery works is they have to use a heart-lung machine to keep the person alive. The heart itself. Has to stop. I gotta tell you, seeing that was more thrilling than any thriller I have ever seen. One of my fellow chaplains reached around and grabbed my shoulder right here, and my own fingers went right up to my pulse to make sure my own heart hadn't stopped. The surgery after that took about, took about five hours. And it was slow and kind of plodding at times, but it was absolutely fascinating. Towards the end, they use these kind of, uh, they look like big salad tongs. Sort of they get underneath the heart and they shock it back into its rhythm because at first, when they start it back up, it's going. And then it, so they have to get it back off of the arrhythmia. They have to get it back to a place where it's slowing down again. I gotta tell you, after I witnessed that, after I witnessed that open heart surgery, two things were in my mind and two things were in my heart. The first was that we ought to pay our heart surgeons like we pay our sports stars. The second was this, from the eighth psalm, a poem of praise to the divine that speaks about the wonder of gazing upon the heavens and the work of your fingers. I was pondering those skilled fingers of the surgeon and the deft figurative fingers of God awestruck for the absolute complexity and wonder of human anatomy, for our circuitry that is inside of us, that is as graceful and as complex as the stars themselves that are arrayed in the heaven. What we had witnessed was something awry with this particular part of creation. This man's body that we saw laid out before us on the operating table, the delicate machinery was slightly off. And his physical life was imperiled as a result. The arteries had been blocked. They were stuffed up. And no constricted vessel can contain or carry life for very long. Without the surgery, we were told, he was going to die. The blood had to be carried through cleaner vessels. As is true of our heart, so is true of our spirit. We heard it today in the drama. we got to remove a bunch of stuff if we want the love to be able to carry on those channels to where it has to go. The soul that is constricted cannot bear the fruit of life, and nothing, nothing at all, makes life recoil from itself more than fear. More than fear, more than worry, more than anxiety. And in this succinct way, this is the absolute substance of what Jesus of Nazareth, what the rabbi of ancient Jerusalem was teaching. Nothing constricts. Nothing holds us down and holds us up like fear. It is fear that makes love impossible, and it is fear that makes the promise of life powerless. Fear is to our spirits what a blockage is to an artery, an impediment of that free flow of life that will not carry us to where we want and where we need to go. What's the first thing that we hear in the Gospel story this morning? What's the first thing that the angel says to Mary and to Mary at the tomb? Do not be afraid. What does Jesus speak to the disciples when he appears later? Do not be afraid. Maybe when we're doing that download, that install of love, we're afraid to let go of all that other stuff that we know so that the new programming can be a part of us. Already Jesus in this story is aware that fear might prohibit the good news of his rising from being shared. 
fear in another gospel story actually discourages the woman from telling anyone. They just run away afraid. The message never gets out. But Jesus' teaching about fear and its relationship to our hearts, it actually is about much more than just the resurrection stories. Jesus keeps returning to fear and fear and fear again. Even before he lives, the words of Archangel Gabriel to Mary, his mom, do not be afraid. In the sixth chapter of Matthew, Jesus teaches this. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet God feeds them. Can any of you, can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your span of life? So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. Perceive one way, maybe this sounds offensive. Is he saying it to people who are hungry? People who don't have a home? But it's not offensive because we really have to take account of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying that worrying, worrying, not thinking, but worrying about these things, that will consume you. Because we are capable of love as human beings, we have fear. Fear is always love's shadow, trailing after it, trailing our deepest commitments with the fear, the concern, the worry, with that nagging sense of loss. What if? What if it doesn't stay? What if it doesn't abide? What if it doesn't keep? Jesus is aware of our anxiety. It's the kind of fear known only to humans. Now, after the service, I hope you'll stay around and be able to meet our Easter bunny as one of my wife and my uh, rabbits. They're prey creatures, which means that everything in nature loves to eat them. They are scared of everything. A loud noise, a sudden movement, and literally their antenna, that's what they are, they go up. They rotate around, they try and see what the threat is, they try and see what the alarm is, to see if it's okay. But rabbits are not anxious. Rabbits are just afraid. Only we can worry. Only we can be anxious. Only we can take fear and blow it so completely out of proportion. That fear doesn't have an object or an end. Only we can worry. It's like that alarm system that keeps going off and keeps going off and keeps going off. Rather than possessing things then, this is what Jesus is talking about. Rather than possessing things, things possess us. And we are filled with worry. Fear is the root in our society of jealousy and of greed. Because of fear, nothing can ever be enough. The Easter morning that we celebrate this day is about a life beyond fear. Love stronger than death. The story of the rising, and as a religious, liberal religious person, there are many stories of rising. This is not the only one. This story of rising has its roots, its roots in the ancient rhythm. You wouldn't know it from a day like today, but of the earth in springtime beginning to awaken itself once more. And this story, while it is grounded in the rhythms of nature, the story of the resurrection and the story of all resurrections, it transcends nature. For while we know that eventually it will get warm out there, and we'll be able to shed these outer garments, and we'll be able to wear shorts, we know that there is a certain amount of inevitability to that. We know that there is not always that sense of inevitability when our life is threatened, or grows cold, or dies. The invitation back to life in the Easter story, it is unexpected. The meaning of Easter may be a challenge for us when we are not prepared that we might even resist. Shock. Denial. No way. Won't accept it. 
That's why the answer is the first one that Jesus gives. Do not be afraid. Jesus knew and he taught that in living a fearful life, we're much like a hand that becomes clenched into a closed fist. And what happens to a closed fist? The thing that we try to hold on to so much, inevitably, we crush it under our grip. We hold on and we hold on and something else happens as well. Because all that time that we are holding on, our fist is balled and kept close to ourselves. We cannot extend outward. We cannot put the hand out there to greet one another, to welcome one another, to love one another. As the, as the economist would call it, that's the opportunity cost of living a fearful life. You can't have fear and love at the same time. A fist cannot meet the world. A fist can only block or a fist can only strike. In the long run, on this Easter day and all days, fear is the entombing of our hearts. Jesus taught the opposite of fear, that we might know in our lives that open and welcoming hand, that making wide of the path of our lives. This is where a word study actually helps us. The actual Hebrew word, we hear a lot about salvation this time of year. Maybe some of your friends have asked you, have you been saved? Do you need to come to my church to get saved? Well, I believe we can get saved right here if we understand what salvation means. It has nothing to do with otherworldliness. Not original. Not originally. Salvation means to make wide the way. That which was narrow and constricted, just like that arteries that are blocked, salvation means to open us up. Love makes wide the path of our lives, and gives room for all of us to travel. At critical junctures in your life, I'm sure you've experienced it already, you will experience it again, life will offer us the possibility or the opportunity for healing. Which way will we turn? Towards the invitation or away from it in fear? Maybe we'll be like that original doubting Thomas who says, this can't be. There are no second chances. Life doesn't have happy endings. Maybe we tell ourselves these things because it's all that we know. Or we can choose to turn toward that change and grow. Towards that invitation. Turn, turn, turn. As the old song says, echoing the even more ancient scripture. That's what conversion means. To turn to turn towards the good things in our lives. And then after, and as we start to do this, sort of like what Jesus does, we return to life. We return to what is there. Easter isn't really a story about the immortality of the soul. That's a Greek idea that precedes Christianity. Easter is about the love of life that is stronger than fear and loss and the fear of loss. If we spend most of our time debating, as perhaps we are want to do at times, does this really happen? If we spend most of our time debating about what really happened at that tomb 2,000 years ago, if we debate too much, myth or reality, delusion or the only truth that matters, we will miss, we will miss the truth of Easter, which applies to each of us and all of us. In the Gospel of Thomas, which is one of those books that didn't make it into the Bible, Jesus teaches about Easter without any reference to Easter at all. He says, That which you have within yourself will save you if you bring it forth from yourself. If you do not bring forth from yourself what is within you, what is within you will destroy you. Fear and love. A choice. 
This non-biblical Jesus, who some would say isn't real because he's not in the scripture, is talking about denial, our modern word for it. He's talking about entombing our hearts, walling them up. He's talking about being so fearful that we hold on and we hold on with those balled up fists and never learn the secret, which is this, which is that only in giving life away can we learn to keep life by our side. It's like the old child's game, the old children's game. Come out, come out wherever you are. Come out of your tomb, come out of your closet, come out of your fear, come out of your dying, come out of your despair. Bring out what is inside of you, and you will be saved. So yes, you can get saved in a Unitarian Universalist congregation. In fact, our secret that I wish we spread out more is that everyone is already saved. That's universalism. One of the earliest traditions about Easter involved the use of a Latin word, alba, which primarily meant white, and some of the scholars think that the reason that it was used is because the robes that the earliest celebrants of Easter used to wear were white. But there's another, another word for alba that translates, and it's better. It's beyond just the dictionary definition. Alba means sunrise. Alba means sunrise. Easter is the celebration of sunrise, a sunrise that is only truly understood once we have known what darkness is, once we have known what despair is, once we have known, literally or figuratively, and very often is metaphorically in our lives, what life inside the tomb is like. And after that, we can celebrate the sunrise. Think about it, kids, maybe it's that moment before you take the test and you are scared out of your wits. Or maybe it's 3 a.m. in the morning and you're not sure what the job will hold, what the medical test will hold, what the next day will hold. Those are tomb moments. Those are tomb moments. Emily Dickinson, the great poet of religious life, put it like this, her words about sunrise and about Easter. Somehow myself survived the night and entered with the dawn. Somehow myself survived the night and entered with the dawn. Somehow, in spite of feeling wretched, like the hymn says, somehow in spite of feeling broken, somehow in spite of not feeling we are enough, somehow in spite of not having enough self-esteem, somehow in spite of not having enough love, somehow in spite of not having enough joy, somehow, fill in the blank that applies to you, somehow we enter. We enter the day, we greet the sunrise, and we can be reborn. We enter the day, greet the sunrise, and recognize and remember again the truth about our lives, that we are creatures endowed with the capacity to be recipients of grace and bearers of love, that we are marked by an original stamp of blessing and an indelible sense of belonging to this life. So let us turn towards the Easter day. Let us turn towards the sunrise. Let us turn towards the light. Let us turn towards life. Let us turn towards love. Let us turn. And as the Quaker hymn says, by turning and turning will be our delight. And by turning and turning, we will come round right. Happy Easter. Amen. May you live in blessing. And I was talking about storms. I was talking about the kinds of events that blow through, literally blow through our lives and leave us afterwards to have to clean up the debris. And little did we know 
The next day, one struck. Monday, quiet campus. Happened there, but there could be anywhere. Could happen here. I hope you weren't too saturated, too overwhelmed this week by all the media coverage of what happened at Virginia Tech. I trust, obviously, that you saw the aftermath in many different ways. This morning, we're still trying to sift through the remains of what's left after in our feelings. Not many of us, perhaps, have a connection to Virginia Tech. Mine is tenuous at best. Maybe some of you, it's stronger. We have a family friend who's a recent graduate. The most I could do this week was just call him, send him an email, say I was thinking of him. These are my prayers and my thoughts. Maybe your connection is greater. But when such violence is done to life, relatively close to us, we pay attention. And so we gather today in this light. Perhaps like many of you, I thought at first of what I could control or what we can control, what we can set our hands to. I focused first on what you know, would give us some protection. So my thoughts turned to Columbine and Paducah and closer to home to West Philly. All the places where the relative ease of getting a handgun have turned our schools and our churches and our streets and our homes into places of mourning. We learned yesterday, in the last couple days, that the killer's history of mental illness should have absolutely disqualified him from getting and purchasing a weapon. Might we not ever together as a people, might we not ever just treat handguns as carefully, at a minimum at least, as we treat and consider our automobiles? So much blood spilled. So much blood shed. I'm not naive about the Second Amendment, but so many deaths at the barrel of a gun. Too many. And like the controversy was this past week, we focused on Cho Sung-hee, just saying his name feels odd. Like a spell that casts nightmares. Now to try to understand him is not an attempt to excuse what he did. We talk, especially in our tradition, we talk of the designed spark, that inner light that shines within us all, like 32 lights that he extinguished. We are heirs of the universalist tradition that seeks to bless the entire world, the entire world, all of us. So I think, was a killer born without that light, or was it dimmed so low by his illness, his sadness, his rage, that finally there was nothing left in his life to be illuminated? Maybe a more forceful act of reaching out, one that even perhaps intruded upon what he thought was his right to privacy, would have kept him from this last final act of desperate, awful brutality. The root of the word monster, you know what it means in Latin? It means warning. It means warning. How many warning signs were missed or not fully acted upon in his life that could have spared his life and, yes, more importantly, the life of all those that he chose to take? But throughout that week, I found myself running down those laundry lists of things that I thought I could control or we could control. But finally, you know what base is what's left? Sadness and anger and fear. Just a profound sense of insecurity. And that kind of stuff we can't control in this life so much. Yes, we can make things better and we're called to make things better, but we cannot make still all the waves that cause us to tremble and cause us to be cast about in this life sometimes. Last week, a little threat 
but not the reality of a storm that might have flooded and washed us away. This week, violence from a human hand that destroyed life. It's what the philosophers throughout the ages have traditionally called natural and moral evil. One descends from the moving of an earth beyond our control, and one comes from the hand of the wicked or the warped who have escaped the bonds of our human family. The tsunami and the mass murderer, the earthquake and the tyranny of evil people. Sometimes brokenness shakes the foundations of life. But in bewilderment, in sorrow, even in fear, we are reminded of something greater. We know that there is another truth to our life. Our own response, our tears, our concern, our compassion, these are plumb lines that we cast down into the depths to truly measure how connected we are in this life. You see, we can't plunder and we can't steal from something that is shallow. Sometimes the price of our own inestimable value, it is paid in our tears. When life is severed, still we yearn for connection. We remember that there is a single source and a common destiny to our lives. This is what Unitarian Universalism means above all. There is a single source, a common destiny for all of our lives. It's the inescapable web of mutuality that Dr. King preached about. We are locked into it. We are a part of it. We cannot get outside of it. Life is wounded and we are shocked scared or even angry, but let us turn again to life. That is the lesson. Our own tradition's great single teacher, Ralph Waldo Emerson, composed a poem just after the death of his namesake and his beloved five-year-old son. The poem is called Threnody. He wrote, The greater fate that carried thee took the largest part of me, for this losing is to dying this is lordly man's down lying. This his show, but sure reclining. Star by star, his world resigning. There is loss, my friends, that reminds us of how fragile and sometimes how precarious life is, even if we don't see it at every moment, even if it would be too much to see it at every moment. It's the place in our hearts where the ultimate beyond all names for it, and the intimate, that which is closest to us. These things come together and we know that we are standing on holy ground, but sometimes holy ground is also ground in which we fear and tremble upon. It touches all of us and it binds us just beyond our solitary lives. But Emerson, because he was a great teacher, just couldn't name despair and sadness. He could name hope as well. He could name that greater truth that bound all of our lives together. Will thou not hope this heart to know what rainbows teach and sunsets show? The verdict which accumulates from lengthened scrolls of all human fates, voice of earth to earth returned, prayers of heart that truly inly burned, saying what is excellent as God lives is permanent. Hearts are dust, hearts loves remains. Hearts love will meet thee again. That last line. Hearts are dust, hearts love remain. Hearts love will meet thee again. No teaching, no scripture, no philosophy, no theology can prove this, but it stands at the center of our common humanity. That loss, even violence, does not have to be the final sentence upon our lives. William Ellery Channing, years ago, 
almost two centuries ago, the first president of organized Unitarianism said it this way proudly in prose, not in poetry. I am a living member of the great family of all souls. I am a living member of the great family of all souls. And I cannot improve or suffer myself without diffusing good or evil around me through an ever-enlarging sphere. Too many traditions want to talk about the truth of who they are as a line, dividing the sheep from those cast out, the elect from the damned, the saved from the not saved. But he got it right, right at our origins of American Unitarianism. It is not about a line that divides, it is about a circle that enlarges, enlarging the circle of our hope. That is our message to the world. And our truth is not how many people we can cram into that circle by saying, get in or get out. But come in here because in here is a place of communion. Come in here because in here is a place of love. Come in here because here is a place where we all can belong. I am a living member of that great family of all souls. That is an affirmation for this morning. In our age, we've come to call this interdependence. All life is relationship. Connection goes right down to the core of who we are. Religious life is so much more than just what we can express with our words or in thought. It is that feeling that never fully captured, never fully expressed experience of being related as a part to the whole to which is our birthright and our destination. All real religious teaching points in this direction. Such moments that let us know, perhaps as you might feel today or some Sundays, when we're wondering, am I alone in the universe? Look to your right. Look to your left. We're not. We're not. This is the embodied representation of that truth. All great religious teaching points to that. There is a truth greater than our aloneness. It is the truth of being enraptured on a beautiful day like today, when spring felt like it perhaps would never arrive, and yet it does gloriously. And we feel it, and the senses come alive. It is the grandeur of this creation, the wonder of how remarkable, how unlikely, how awe-inspiring it is that creation has made room for us. That whatever process it was that led back through the generations, whatever set it in motion and down into the summatomic level that we all share, it was a mystery yielding to a mystery yielding to a mystery leading to a mystery that gave birth to you. And you are here this morning. Here you are. And here we are. Alive. Instead of not, I think that miracle needs no other definition other than this, and this is the proof of miracle that has provided us. There is a greater truth of our aloneness, greater truth than our aloneness. We know it when we spend time in the company of people who lift up our spirits, the one who sing and dance and spread their wings into the natural abundance of wisdom in this life, the one whose wealth of spirit is spread about them like a light that helps you illuminate your path. Maybe communion comes about through you. It's not a word that happens in church. It's not a word that happens in a building. It is a place and it is a people that you carry with you when you go and you open yourselves up to the other. It is the place where one piece, one person speaks a word of truth so profound that something that was in broken in you has an opportunity to name itself for the first time. And your struggles and your strivings, you are remembered that it's not in the nature to be alone. We know together that we share so much. 
at such times of these deep communion, this deep conversation, we know there is no teacher and there is no student, there is no leader and there is no follower. There is just the shared presence of authentic human presence, just light that reaches out for light. And there is a truth greater than our aloneness in the quiet moments. And I hope you all have been blessed with these recently in your life. In the quiet moments of solace, in the form of a friendly knock on the door, a phone call that you weren't expecting, a kind word, a hug, the kind of thing that arrives just in time when you feel that you are skidding toward the edges of your known self and you are anxious that you will reach a limit that you will not be able to return from. In those times when we are disfigured by sorrow and we can't bear to look at ourselves for fear of what we might see in the mirror, what a blessed assurance it is to know that face to face others will see us and will take us as we are and welcome us into a place that we know is home. Rahane Salam is a political blogger and this past week he was writing about the events of Virginia Tech. He was particularly talking about that loneliness of despair that comes in the form of mental illness for so many people, millions of people are in society and he was writing about when he experienced something like that. In November 2001 I was rattled, he says, like a lot of people, by the news of the world. But I also was hit by what now seems like a minor personal tragedy. Namely, a young woman broke my heart in the massive, soul-crushing way that only an adolescent can really appreciate. I was depressed, dangerously depressed, I'm afraid. I made it to work every day, and I think I did a decent job, but as soon as I returned home to my own cocoon, I felt awfully hopeless and alone. My army of good friends, well, they were in California and Massachusetts and New York, and I was languishing in the District of Columbia. I vividly remember in my basement apartment reading books all night long and listening to the song by Death Cab for Cutie called Photo Booth over and over and over again on endless repeat. It was bad. I mean, really, really bad. And then one day I came home and found that my mother was there waiting for me. Apparently she had heard about my dark mood from my friends and she was worried. She woke me up in that moment. See, my mom doesn't even know how to drive. She took off from work and found her way from Brooklyn all the way down to Washington just mere minutes after she got that phone call. Understand that my mother could never make it to any of my school plays or debate tournaments when I was growing up because she was working so incredibly hard all the time. But there she was, standing in my doorway. I mean, I was angry at first. I was far from suicidal. I was just extremely, extremely depressed. Then it occurred to me that I maybe I needed to suck it up because I was doing more than just hurting myself. On those rare occasions when I reflect on how really rough those weeks were, I think how lucky I am to have had friends who were attuned absolutely to my mood, even over the phone, and to have a crazy, wonderful mother who would go to tremendous lengths for me. The grace of that unexpected visit, greater than our loneliness and sometimes even greater than our despair, Paul Tillich is one of my favorite theologians. And he rejected all the dominant images of God in his time because he felt at base they were idolatrous. That they just were a reflection, just a reflection of what people wanted the universe to be and one of those lines that divided people from each other. But still he believed in that forming power of religious faith, of the spiritual life. And he did so because of his experience of grace, of life that was reunited with life. 
in what was arguably his most famous sermon. He was a great academic, but he was an even better preacher. He preached a simple message, three little words. You are accepted. You are accepted. You are accepted by that which is greater than you and the name of which you do not know and has no name. Do not ask for the name now. Perhaps you will find one later. Do not try to do anything now. Perhaps later you will do much. Do not seek for anything. Do not perform anything. Do not intend anything. Simply accept the fact that you are accepted. Simply accept the fact that you are accepted. From there on, perhaps the transformation comes. It's a transformation we can't control entirely. Emerson, again, who, if you remember back to reading the famous Self-Reliance, he's really the first self-help guru, the guru of American individualism. Perhaps some of you read it in high school. Well, Emerson knew a deeper truth beyond just self-reliance. He said, faith makes us, we don't make it. Religious life is about opening ourselves up to more than just ourselves alone. So many of us paid attention this past week. Our eyes were opened, even if we weren't directly affected. So the question is now, what do we do with it? What does it mean? Was it just something that we tuned in a little bit more into CNN or online news? Just a little bit more frequently than perhaps we do. But the lessons are many if we want to stay in tune and paying attention. The first is this. Do not wait for another tragedy to wake you up. That is too high a price to pay. In one of the many lessons of September 11, 2001 that still echo out for us, do you know that the most important day was for giving blood? Not all those people, and I was one of them who signed up. I said, I have to do something. It has to be some way I can control, some way I can get my hands around this tragedy. You know the most important day was to give blood? September 10th. That's the day that mattered. Ordinary time, ordinary life, in the swim of things, in the midst of things, when we weren't waking for another, waiting for another tragedy to have to wake us up. It was in that moment when life was just going along. That's when showing up matters the most. Kindness, compassion, awakening, these are daily practices. And I can tell you that even if sometimes they might be spurred on by nightmares, that is not fertile soil enough for the basis of a spiritual life. At Wellsprings, we believe that each of us, each of us yearns for connection with each other and with the sacred. If there is a lesson to Mr. Cho's life, to the killer's life, it is of the consuming hellishness of life that is completely set apart from other lives. A life that has only himself, only life set apart and set against other lives. Sartre said that hell is other people. He was wrong. Hell, as we might imagine it, is only and ever ourselves without any connections with no opportunity to realize the truth greater than our aloneness. So we can recognize this morning that the curtain in this week of the aftermath after the storm has been drawn back a little bit, but it will continue to be drawn back if we can look upon our lives with these appreciative eyes, if we can look into each each other's eyes with appreciation, with knowledge that, you know what, it is just a gift to be here. Nothing ordained it so, and yet this is what we are blessed with. Take nothing for granted. Here in this time, this is the opportunity where awakening can occur.
Because at the end of the day, there is the time of solitude. Perhaps you stand before the mirror, brushing your teeth, preparing for that final solitude of the day. In that prayer of quiet time before our dreams dream us throughout the night, we are by ourselves. We always stand at that threshold of sleep, just as one day all of us will stand on our own before the mystery of death. But we know when we look at that mirror, if we truly look at all those eyes and all those people that we contain within us, as Whitman said, we contain multitudes. We know that there is more than just the mirror staring back at us. We did not set the earth in motion. We did not ordain the dawn and the dusk. We did not choose that sleep must visit us. In all these things, we are chosen. All must pass this way. We are not alone. And so before our eyes close for the night, perhaps you see them. Our loved ones, loved ones who are now lost, places like Virginia Tech, here and gone, the mysterious countless others, the poor and the exalted, the joyous and the sad, the peaceful and those who know no peace. All will pass this way with us. They are here. They are here too. And so with them and with ourselves, we rest. Amen. May you live in blessing. So this is the third in our series about building a community of kindness. Home is where the heart is. Home is a powerful and very everyday word. Charles Dickens, who was a Unitarian, by the way, said home is a name, a word, and a strong one, stronger than the magician ever spoke or spirit ever answered to. Yeah, it may be a magic word, but we use it really casually, like when we say, I'm going home, meaning back to the hotel room from the meeting we just attended. And some realtors say they can sell you a home. No one can sell you a home. No one can find a home for you. They can sell you a house. They can find you a building. They can't sell you a home. Have you ever seen the magazine? I'm sure you probably have. Better Homes and Gardens? What is it? It's mostly ads for products to make your house more attractive, remodeling and decorating products. It implies, though, that you make your home better by getting just the right paint color, the right tile, the right carpet, maybe even a new window. I don't think so. I don't think your home will be better. Your house may be more beautiful, more comfortable, maybe your stuff will be organized. I have a fantasy about organized walk-in California closets. I admit it, I drool, yes, I see some other people share that, and I don't have that. It's a fantasy. But it doesn't make my home better. My husband does like to remodel our old house. I love color, I love design, I love the finished products, projects. None of these things make our house a home or make it a better home. Yeah? 
Home is something that people make, a place where we belong. The most beautiful, the most well-furnished house is not necessarily a home, and the most humble studio apartment may be a home. Have you ever walked into a house that felt really uncomfortable because it was really beautiful and nothing looked like it was ever out of place? And surely no kids live there, no real kids. Yeah. It doesn't, it just doesn't feel like a home. A real home is an honest place. It might be beautiful and orderly. It might be beautiful and messy. It might be lacking in style but full of life and energy. But it's honest. We belong at home because we are known there and here. When we're really at home, we're at ease and can be our authentic selves. At home, we're accepted with our flaws. Sometimes we're even loved for some of our flaws. Our flaws are part of our unique selves, our authentic selves. And a real home takes love. Not just sentimental, pretty greeting card love. Robust, unvarnished love. Sentimental love idealizes. It's like a marshmallow. It's very sweet at first, but it has no substance. Robust love is love that can face pain, conflict, loss. Love that stays connected in the face of terminal cancer, in the face of conflict, in the face of loss. It's love that supports and challenges. But to receive and to give that love takes trust. And trust takes commitment and constancy. Will we be who we say we are? Will we be there when we're needed? Will we keep coming back? Will we take the kids to soccer practice, pick up the dry cleaning, pick up the milk, like we said we would? Will we be there to listen to the what a day I had story? Yeah. Will we be there to celebrate? Will we be there for tears and anger? Home becomes the place where we are encouraged. That is given the heart and the courage to serve out in the world, to find our way in the world, to find meaningful service. Home is the place where we can grow. Now, I had to learn about all this as an adult, mostly. Home as a safe place was not my childhood experience. As a girl, my home was far from safe. It was chaotic, it was noisy, it was unpredictable. I'm the oldest of six children, and clearly the oldest daughter. And my parents had a highly conflictual relationship. When I came home, I never knew if there would be ice-cold silence, that tension you can cut with a knife, a screaming fight, or cheerful smiles. Sometimes in a fight, one or the other of my parents would get up, slam the door, and leave. And I wasn't always sure they were coming back. A couple of times, my mother got us up in the middle of the night and drove five hours to my grandmother's house. I was more at home out in the world, in the woods, or in my books. I felt it was my job at home to take care of my brothers and sisters, physically and emotionally. I thought that I needed to do whatever I could do to keep things peaceful at home and as safe as I could. And I know that I'm not alone in this room. 
and deciding that in order to be loved, I had to be very, very good. I had to not need anything. I had to not make too much noise. I had to not cause any trouble. You know, and as our first song this morning suggests, I had to learn through adult life that it really is okay to lean on someone else and to ask for help and receive help. So at home, I couldn't be my true self. I was either big sister or a good daughter. And I listened over and over again to West Side Story cast album. You know the song, There's a place for us. Somewhere a place for us. I really, <laughs> I didn't know if I was going to actually sing that or just say it. <laughs> I, I, but I yearned for that place. And in adulthood, I found that you can find that place. Because that was all a long time ago. I've been very lucky in my adult life, and I did go to therapy as a client not as well as I worked as a therapist. So. And I have been loved I lo- and I love and I have felt grace. I learned that to be intimate it was not only okay but necessary to be my honest self. I learned that not only can I listen but I can expect to be heard. Okay, not every time will I be heard. <laughs> How many times has somebody in your house said, you never told me that? And you know you did probably more than once. Your nurse Joe Moore said, home is the place where you can say anything you want because nobody pays any attention to you anyway. (laughs) Yeah, we laugh because partly we've had that kind of experience. I know I told him. But I hope that you can expect to be heard in your home. Expect that there is deep listening in your home as I can expect to be heard in my home. Given my parents' marriage, I was very skeptical of marriage, of really making a commitment. My husband says that our first fight, it didn't seem like a fight to me, but he says it was our first fight, was before we were married, when we were first dating, and somebody said they thought we were married already. I was insulted. And Rick was quite confused. His parents had a stable, happy marriage. He thought maybe my response was about him, but it wasn't at all. So it took me a while to make a full commitment. Even after we were married, I watched. I watched for things to change, for that constancy, love, and trust to disappear. But it didn't. And finally, I knew that I, too, really could be fully committed. And we've been married now for 30 years. Our home has become a real home, one with honesty, love, laughter, and conflict and pain. (coughs) Home is a place where we have both grown. Because home is not a place where you can stay the same. Home is a place where you will be asked to change. You will be asked to contribute. You'll be asked to do some work. For me, as for many of you, our house has been in different places. We've lived in different towns, in different states, and I know many of you have also. But no matter where I live, home is where my heart is. And now my heart is in a couple of places. It's at home where I live, and it's here. The two of us wouldn't have been able to make that real home without other relationships. Relationships with friends and family, 
relationships which supported our relationship. It takes community. And I want to point out that I am not saying that you have to live with others in your house to be at home. You can live alone and have a home. But you can't have a sense of home without other important relationships. Indeed, we don't even make ourselves without relationships. We become ourselves through relationships. E.E. E. Cummings says it takes courage to grow up and be who you really are. And I say, yeah, it does. And sometimes it takes searching and yearning, but it always takes relationships and community to become your true self. Unitarian Universalist writer Sharon Welch says, we see as we were seen, we love as we were loved. To see the world through the lenses of compassion and empathy is not a duty, a demand, or an obligation, or a sacrifice. It is rather a blessing and a gift. Caring about injustice is the result of being loved, recognized, and seen by others. And it's never too late to allow yourself to be seen, to be loved, and to see and to love. So we are building a community of kindness here at Wellsprings. And for a congregation to become a religious home takes authenticity, trust, love, and constancy also. It takes deep listening. And this vision of religious community has deep historic roots in, in Unitarian Universalism. In 1637, in Dedham, Massachusetts, their, con their first congregation was founded there. That church later became a Unitarian church and is famous in Unitarian Universalist history, which is a very small slice of history that most people don't know much about, but it's famous in Unitarian Universalist history. But the people who founded that church were a lot like the people in 21st century Chester County. Most of them had just moved to where they lived. They didn't really know each other very well. They were busy people working very hard to establish lives in this new place. Many of them, most of them, were very far from any extended family. So you know what they did to start that congregation? They set up weekly meetings. They wrote that their purpose was lovingly to discourse and consult together to prepare for spiritual community. And in their meetings, they promised to speak their own truth and to listen deeply to each other. They understood that their work was to be loving God and loving one another so well that they could bring peace and justice to their community. Sounds familiar to some folks? They covenanted with each other. Covenant is a fancy religious word for promise. To act out of genuine, deep religious love. And that's what we're trying to do here. So relationships are essential to finding a religious home. You, you might first visit a congregation because of an invitation, because of a relationship. I am here, actually, because I met Ken Belden at a meeting. And Ken told me about the work that was being done at Wellsprings and about our values and beliefs here. I recently had an email from a former psychotherapy client. She had moved across the country and she didn't know that I'd changed careers from psychology to ministry. And when I told her what I was doing, this deeply skeptical, non-religious, academic woman 
wrote back to me, yours would be the only church that I would join. And I'm not saying that to praise myself. It is a compliment, but it's mostly about the power of relationship. She had come to trust me. And it would have been enough to check out the congregation, if she lived here, but she lives on the other part of the country. If she actually lived close enough to visit, she would need more than a relationship with me for this to be her religious congregation. She would need relationships with you and with us. So what led you to visit Wellsprings? If this is your first time here, what do you need to see, feel, hear, or experience to want to come back again? If you've been here before, what's bringing you back? What do you need for Wellsprings to be your religious community, your home? What do you need for Wellsprings to be the place where you help create that community? Connections, relationships, that matter are the reason that people keep coming back. Many people have already experienced hurt and confusion from past religious experiences. One of them wrote on the Unitarian Universalist website, I didn't want to be in church that day. It was the last place I ever wanted to be. But when he came to church at his partner's request, he found a genuine welcome and support. He found what he had hoped for but didn't believe could actually exist. And he said, the first day I came, I fell in love with the church. Each week that I come, it grows deeper. This church has been a second home for me. By the church, he means the people. So it takes the same qualities to make a community of kindness as it takes to make an individual or family home. A community of kindness is an intentional, chosen community. It needs that commitment, honesty, and love. It takes the ability to be supportive and the ability to be vulnerable. It takes trust. When we trust others and allow ourselves to be trusted, we can experience transformation and empowerment. And it takes love, not niceness. Niceness is not the same as kindness, not the same as love, at least for me. For me, niceness is that dishonest, superficial politeness Oh, how nice to see you. Yes, I'm fine, 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 meaning feelings inside never expressed. And this love is not the same as liking. In a genuine community, there are always going to be people who are different from us and with whom we disagree. People whose ways of doing things may annoy us. People that we may not even like. But... In a religious home, we listen, we respect, we encourage, we act in loving ways. Parker Palmer, a Quaker writer and educator, wrote that community is the place where the person you least want to live with always lives. And when that person moves away, someone else always moves in to take her place. He also notes that the people who trouble us in this way are likely to be people who bring out things in ourselves that we don't really like about ourselves. And thus, we actually can learn and grow from those interactions. 
So at Well Springs, we are building a community of kindness, a religious home to empower people to find their true sense of calling, their true sense of self, their way of being most themselves in the world. So we encourage each other on our spiritual paths. We equip families to grow together. We work to be a community of integrity and of deep listening. And we believe that each of us does have meaningful work in the world. We want to be the change that we want to see in the world. And as director of equipping, it's my work and my joy to facilitate your explorations of what you do best and the world needs most, the place of your joyful work in the world. Because we believe that helping you to find your gifts can help you to find your sense of being at home, in the congregation, and in the world. What do you need now to put a little more love in your heart? Is there something that you need to strengthen your own home? Will you please take a few seconds here and think of one small thing that you can do that will help make Wellsprings a religious home, a home not only for those of us who are already here, but for those who will come next week, next month, next year? Maybe that thing is just talking to someone you don't know already. Maybe it's something else. Then it may be, as Oliver Wendell Holmes said, where we love is home, home that our feet may leave, but not our hearts. May your heart rest at home. May it be so.